0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
2: affect a community or neighborhood.
3: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, longtime elections official Bill Galvin will face a challenger in 2018. A pilot program aims to reduce avoidable ER and hospital use for LGBTQ people. And figuring out the future of the iconic Strand Theater in Upham's Corner. It's the local news from this week that you may have missed. Later in the show, Healing Through Rhythm. That's Jonathan Monday's mission for
1: his educational program, Drums and Wellness. If anybody learns rhythm or they understand their sense of rhythm, then how they connect with themselves and others in the world is really representing their true authentic self. Jonathan
3: tells us about the extraordinary circumstances that led to his success as a musician and as an advocate for education and personal development. But first, joining me in the studio, Gin Doomschuss, State House reporter for Mass Live. Welcome back, Gin. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell, and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello again, Sue. Hey, Kelly. And Jennifer Smith, news editor for The Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, Kelly. We're starting with you, Sue. This lab in the South End, Boston University's High Security Laboratory, we must have been talking about this over the years (laughs) on this show.
2: I have been at the South End News since 1998, and we have talked about it all the time since then. So it's been a topic one of conversation in the South End since then.
3: And the concern was from the beginning that there would be some serious, deadly microbes in there that nobody could control and it would possibly leak out and infect the community. And now, so it's been a lot of research and Mm -hmm. pushback from the community. Uh, Now the Boston Public Health Commission said it can go forward. Yeah,
2: there's been a number of concerns about it. One is, of course, what you said, and it wasn't so much about the safety of the lab, but the human aspect, the human use, using of the lab, and what humans are likely to do. I mean, uh, one of the examples that's been given by people against the lab being in the South End and not somewhere less populated, was if you recall the NASA astronaut woman who was having an affair with the male astronaut, and NASA astronauts go through some of the most vigorous psychological screening that there is, and she put on a diaper and drove across the country to kidnap her then uh, object of her um, stockings, girlfriend or wife or something. So they often would say, that's great, we have all these great locks, but we also have humans using it. And the biolab is in this congested area. It's right by 93 by the expressway. It's right in the south end. And the answer to that was, well, shouldn't we be proud about the research we're trying to do to cure Ebola? You know, maybe we'll come up with a a way to cure cancer. And wouldn't we all be proud if this happened right here in Boston in the South End? And it's hard to attract quality people. If you have a lab in the middle of the country where there's no city, where there's no Boston, where there's no uh, seaport, and we need to have that sort of badge of honor to bring people here. So much has changed since 1998 in the South End. Another concern was, well, you're putting this biolab right in the middle of one of the poorest areas of the city in that the South End has more federal and uh, state housing projects for low-income families. But of course now here we are in 2017 and it's also one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city. So the argument of you're just putting this on the backs of poor people no longer really – consists, uh, will will maintain. So the South End News is actually never editorialized either way mm. on this lab, basically because we couldn't make up our mind which one we were mm. more concerned about. But after a few missteps, and for a history lesson, of course, the process of this under the Menino administration was not as smooth as you wanted it to be. There was not that much community involvement. There was a fire early on in the building that got people nervous. But they've gone through all the steps. It's been vetted. It's going to be opening and fully functioning. And you you know, there is still some concern in the neighborhood. A lot of people who were against it no longer live in the neighborhood. Some mm-hmm. of them have passed on. So we're in a new generation, a new century. So we'll see what happens.
3: So, again, the thing is that what concerned people, aside from the other issues that, that Sue raised, was that these are pathogens that have no cure, period. And they are so dangerous. So she mentioned Ebola, but we're talking about diseases at that level, where if people can remember when we had the couple cases in the United States, how people had to dress, the hazmat, the whole thing. And even then, uh, even the smallest tear in the gowns of the people working around folks that had this could have been a problem. So this is what people are afraid of, really.
4: Yeah, I remember seeing the uh, the movie Andromeda Strain in, in school, oh, and yeah. that was a terrifying movie. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and it, it, it touched mm-hmm. on a lot of those fears. I think it's also why it's been such a potent political issue. I've covered elections. That's Tito Jackson's district, and he was an opponent of the Biolab. And I think WGBH's David Bernstein pointed out on Twitter the other day that this is a pretty big decision that came about a month after the election was mm-hmm. over. And it didn't seem like the commission... Needed to deliberate all that much because of how long this has been happening. So uh, you know, it's fair to ask: uh, Was this decision put off so that that it didn't blow up during the mayoral election? And it would have been a fascinating debate if it had actually. Mm-hmm. Just how much the city wants this versus the neighborhood. Jennifer?
0: I was going to say, I mentioned Andromeda strain. I'm always struck whenever we're talking about pathogens, just how much of public perception is kind of driven by our pop culture sense (laughs) of how diseases work, how they're transmitted. A comparable example might even be uh, in court when you talk about the CSI effect, how everybody feels like they're an expert Mm -hmm. on this one subject. They expect a certain amount of forensic data to come in as evidence where... You know, if you think about it, as Sue mentioned, of course, they've got every reason to make sure that this is as locked down, as secure, that the staff that they're using are as vetted as possible, that they will make every attempt not to, for instance, get a tear in any of their suits and and pass that along. But uh, it's always interesting when you have something that's pushing up against something with the same kind of cultural presence Mm -hmm. as this fear of pathogens, Mm. because then it's hard to kind of make a more boring rote argument of, No, I mean, it's a lab. This is what it's for. This is set up to study these high level, very dangerous things so that we can eventually find a cure. So maybe if something like this gets out in the future, we'll have an answer to it as opposed to just keeping it in the lab. And Kelly, just Mm. to to put that also a finer point on that, I I
2: live... Right near the bio lab, I've lived near the bio lab. I've worked our offices, the old South End news offices, where we could see the bio lab. So we've been there. So it's not as if I don't have any skin in this game. But at the same point, we have shootings all the time mm-hmm. in the South End mm-hmm. and in the area. We have gun violence, which is escalating this year. Very. Very rarely do we have a, an incident at a lab like the bio lab that puts the, the public in an immediate danger, you know. So I would echo that. It is what it is. I think it's going to be very safe people who are against it and even for it, excuse me, should hold the people to the highest accountability around the safety of it. But we also have more immediate danger that is affecting us right now, right here in the south end.
3: Well, I agree with that. I would just put a button on it and say that with this lab dealing with the highest level of dangerous pathogens, that's one thing. But if you go down a step and you don't have to go too far down, you can look at the work that reporters did here at WGBH about this bacteria that we don't, know how to cure. That's every day now mm-hmm. in hospitals.
2: So, well, even the yeah, flu. I mean, if they, exactly. if they have a flu virus that we're not prepared for, that could be just as deadly. And exactly. they're getting more resistant, so, too. Yeah. It's, right.
3: It's really. So anyway, well, I assume there will be lots of people keeping an eye on it still, even though the original folks are gone away, as Sue has pointed out. So let's move on. Here's another sign of the times. Jennifer, I thought this was fascinating that the Boston police are asking residents and merchants in Dorchester's District C-11 to Join a program in which they would give up their security cameras to the police so that they could ostensibly be able to solve crimes faster because they, you know, have the benefit of extra cameras.
0: Yeah, Mm. and so I think a lot of people are on and off familiar with news stories where somebody wanders up to someone's porch and takes a package and goes wandering off with it and because someone had a smart lock or some kind of video system set up on their porch, they're able to then give that to the police, go through, identify them. Same if there's a shooting outside, one of these situations where people have these private cameras. And so over the past few months or so Boston Police and C-11, which is mostly Dorchester, have been trying to figure out if there's a way to kind of hook those cameras in through a voluntary program to give the police control over essentially an entire other set of security cameras in the district beyond just the normal CCTV that they have set up in strategic areas. And it's interesting because it adds this additional layer where, for instance, if you'd be sharing your camera with the police for surveillance reasons, you're also kind of asked not to take that same footage out to the press before police have been able to review it. It would basically be turning your private security footage into an additional resource for police to monitor. The thinking being the wider the visual net is, the easier it would be for police to actually use it. And they're kind of looking at this as a potential pilot, where they'd start in Dorchester, start in C-11, see how they deal with storing the video data, going through it, geotagging, where everything's happening for officers on the street, and then considering kind of beaming it out citywide.
3: It's called camshare, Sue. And I was reading along going, okay, and then I thought, you're going to give up your passwords to your personal security camera, and they have complete access of it. I assume there's a lot of people using Ring, those Ring cameras, if mm-hmm. you know that yep. they go on your doorbell or whatever, and then you can see a huge swath of street, not just your front porch. So it could be quite valuable. But there's a lot of privacy issues here and control issues that, I don't know, maybe I'm being too squishy, but it makes me very nervous. Oh,
2: it's all over,
3: Callie. We yeah, might well, as well just I've... give them, we give them <laughs> <laughs> Amazon
2: the keys to the house, oh you know. I mean, I, I, I as much as uh, I think, like you, I have a very complicated reaction to this. Like, yes, we need more help in the neighborhoods where they're having a hard time solving these shootings, these unsolved shootings that continue. And whenever there's a major event like the Boston Marathon bombing, the police ask private citizens and businesses to give those videos up to help solve the problem. And people generally are very open about uh, giving that. So that's helpful. But again, how much privacy are we giving up just walking by someone's house if something happens? Suddenly we're involved in the police having our information. And how much do we trust the government to not do face recognition on those and believe what they're going to say? And is this really the best way the Boston police can work to try and build trust within the community to make sure that they're getting the information from the community when a crime has happened? So all those things. Let's go back to the Boston bombing. That was after the fact. Right. This is, exactly. you know, uh, happening all the time
3: now. Mm-hmm. You, we don't wait till something happens. They can just go put in your password and pop Take it a up. Look. Right. right. This also involves merchants as well. Here's the thing, again, and I <laughs> thought about this. So the cops are really interested in a cam share with merchants and residents. But they're really opposed to wearing police cameras. Now, that's video, too. That would be very interesting to have. Help me with that.
4: Well, and that's another uh, decision uh, that the the Walsh administration uh, pushed off until after the election. Um, No, that's an incredibly fascinating dilemma there. And for the police, they always – I think part of their issue is the cost of it and storing all that data and exactly how to manage that data. Because obviously us reporters, we want to see that data, too. But obviously, there are some cops who are very reluctant to open up. I think.
2: Oh, no, let's be clear. It's the policeman's mm. union. It's the police yeah. union yeah. that's... I mean, I've talked to a number of police
0: officers who are for
2: it and are okay about
0: yeah. it. And a lot but, of the ones that are wearing it are also kind of indifferent about it. It was right. weird to begin with. and, and now all, they're fine. And the distinction, too, I'd say, between giving someone the password to the door versus wearing it is the difference between documenting what's happening when police are present versus giving police eyes in places that they aren't. So obviously it's a yeah. cogent point there. Right, yeah. and, I, and
4: I think pol- uh, law enforcement agencies do have a history of not really being big fans of transparency. We see that with the Massachusetts State Police. <laughs> they have a they won a Golden Padlock Award from the Investigative Reporters uh, Group there a few years ago. And I think I think now with the State Trooper scandal uh, that remains in the headlines, we're we're seeing the effects of that. When when you're not being transparent with the public, you lose some of the benefit of the doubt. Police I've seen over the last couple of years, they've gotten very good at Facebook. They've gotten very good at Twitter and kind of putting out press releases, feel good videos about a state trooper chasing a bunny on I ninety three. But um, this is more important, and being transparent and understanding that you're a servant of the public is a huge part of it. This is a volunteer program. I have to wonder if the police approach a merchant or a resident and they ask about this. Does that merchant and resident feel like Mm -hmm. they can actually feel like they're volunteering? Uh, What happens if they say, no, thank you, you know, I'm happy to give up video after the fact or whatever, but no, I'd rather not? I would imagine lawyers would have to get involved. It's one of those things, you know, sometimes a culture says like, well, you know, if you ask for a lawyer, you're hiding something or you're admitting guilt. And in fact, I think most legal experts will say, no, it's like, it's a good thing to have a lawyer involved. Because having that second pair of eyes, I would imagine in this case, uh, if I were a merchant or, or a resident, I would want a lawyer involved to figure out, draft some sort of agreement or, you know, the password thing was very, that made my eyes pop. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: and, and see, if, if it worked the way they would want it to work, then they'd already have your permission. So they wouldn't right. have to ask you. That's the goal. Right. right. So you're right about the people who say at the beginning, you know what, no, nah, why don't you come back to me if you have something specific and I can think about whether or not I want to release, if
0: I have video I want to release. Yeah, you don't so want to get into a situation where the- they're going up to someone being like, hey, I mean, we have the cameras everywhere else on the street. So it would be really great if <laughs> yeah. you on this corner could give us your videos. Right. Is that, yeah. So is that person actually volunteering <laughs> when they say exactly. yes? Yeah, exactly. yeah, No, it's it's exactly. a really interesting question yeah. because you get into kind of the paradox of authority figures making a request. Exactly. <laughs>
3: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Gin Doomshus of Mass Live, Sue O'Connell of NECN, and Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. And we're discussing this week's local news that you may have missed. So, again, the Springfield Police Commissioner fired the guy Conrad La River, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, who was a officer who um, wrote some untoward comments, which I will quote here after the Charlottesville rally. Everybody remembers that. This is in response to looking at the car plowing into the protesters, which left a lot of people seriously injured and one woman dead. He wrote, ha, 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 ha. Love this. Maybe people shouldn't block roadways. The police commissioner, John Barbieri, fired him. And I guess he's gotten some pushback gained from the police union, but he felt very strongly that this was a step he had to take.
4: Yeah, and the union, the union uh, put out a pretty uh, lengthy statement, kind of pushing back on this. My Springfield colleagues have been uh, following the story. Uh, my colleague Dan Glon first broke the story. I believe that this police officer put comments on Facebook, and uh, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about recognizing the fact that you're a public servant, and these kinds of comments, especially when you're a police officer, can have a hugely detrimental effect on how the public perceives, not just you, but the police department as a whole. I think the union is saying, well, he made those comments as a private citizen and, you know, they're not as bad as they look, but it's, you know, the the damage (laughs) is done. (laughs) I mean, regardless regardless of, so obviously, you know, it's in the appeals process. I think it also speaks to how difficult it is to remove an alleged bad actor I think what we frequently see in the headlines is, whether it's a firefighter, police officer, even a reporter sometimes, when the organization tries to remove them, the union immediately steps in and starts proceedings. And and to a degree, you know, some people will say, like, that's what a union is for. It's to protect everybody, not just the good apples and bad apples. But the effect from the public's point of view is that they see it's like, well, it's, it's very hard to fire those alleged bad actors. And why is that? And I think in this case especially, perception becomes reality a lot of times. And this was something that the police commissioner says in the piece of, like, this is going to take years to undo. This is going to take a very long time to rebuild that trust. And it it also speaks to how careful, especially if you're a public servant, everybody should be careful on social media. But especially if you're a public servant, you should be incredibly careful.
3: Part of the union's pushback is that there was no social media policy per se, Jennifer, for, for the police But I have to say, and and picking up on Gen's point, is there nothing that somebody could do inside the union, and I'm I'm all about the union defending and standing the line, that somebody can do in which you say, you know what, that was just really... You know, I'm sorry, Conrad, but you know what? That's, we can't we can't support that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if there's any particular line. I think if this year has taught us anything, maybe those lines don't exist. But mm. when it comes to the social media policy, it's a little bit tricky because we are used to, for instance, policing members of an organization in how they portray themselves in public. If he'd gone out into a public square and said, isn't it great that this horrible thing happened? People shouldn't block the roads. People around him would understandably kind of give the police officer a weird look and say, why are you a public servant saying this? Mm. But when it comes to social media, there's still kind of that fuzzy area between what is even private? You know, if this hadn't been picked up and put out, there probably would have been discomfort with those who saw the comment. But the fact that things can go viral now in the way that they do is actually adding a bit more of an impetus for organizations to have kind of social media policy that mirrors normal professional policy. Because if tens of thousands of people are seeing an officer say ha 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 to a woman being killed um, and other people being And other people being seriously (laughs) injured. That has an impact on the police department. And instead, what they had to do was penalize him as a representative of the department rather than pointing to a specific thing that he specifically Mm. did wrong under an ordained policy. So it just ends up making it a lot mushier. so the union has a better case to get involved because there wasn't something he was specifically violating.
3: Though so I would say, Sue, that he identified himself as an mm-hmm. officer. So mm-hmm. there are certain, I don't even know what their contract says, but right. I, I'm going to guess it says that you should not be making these kinds of comments. Well, look, okay,
2: uh, we're, we're heading into a world because of the, the general failure and diminishing of unions as a power, mm-hmm. protecting people, protecting workers in the United States. We are We're running into a two-state situation where we have people who have unions who are most likely now public servants Mm -hmm. and the rest of us who don't have unions. Mm -hmm. At my job, at most of your jobs, there are policies around social media and your usage as a representative of the company, right? Mm-hmm, so right. they're very clear almost everyone who's listening to this who has a job has seen that in their, their employee handbook or company policy. What happens now when we have these public servants who are the only ones who have unions, if we were to demand – that there be a social media policy for each police department, the union would demand more money for the police officers to follow it, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? The fire department should be tested for more drugs. In order to be tested for more drugs, they want more want more money. The Boston police should be wearing cameras, mm-hmm. but we know that's going to come down to a contract negotiation mm-hmm. where the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association asks for more money for the police to do what all of us in our private life jobs do. So there's no answer here except that the unions for regular people have diminished their ability to protect us, and the unions for the public sector has made them different from us in how they're held accountable.
3: Well, while you're talking, this is Sue O'Connell from And my mother
2: was a teamster and so was my father. (laughs) Well, no, and my father
3: too, you know, union person all the way. I wanted to switch topics and talk about this pilot program at Fenway Health. We should say at the outset that Fenway Health is always out in front looking for ways to really address its population, its clients, that would not only make sense but are cost-effective. And so this is a a grant um, to look at a way to reduce people's going to emergency rooms and hospitals. The the Fenway's
2: uh, clientele is mostly LGBTQ folks in the Boston and greater Boston area. And like many minority groups the LGBT population is more likely to suffer from mental health issues, substance abuse issues, behavioral issues, quite clearly as a direct result from living with discrimination. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're all getting pretty clear on the on the cost of discrimination on health for everyone. And what they're finding is that that population, for whatever reason, will tend to go more quickly to an emergency room than to get behavioral health in advance to help diminish the need to go to the emergency room.
3: Well, you, is that because you feel like you're guaranteed help if you you're go You're guaranteed there? help, yes.
2: you're guaranteed coverage, right. you know, and you're also in an emergency situation that you feel that you'll get what you need. But if anyone who, who has ever been to the emergency room with someone who needs immediate mental health assistance, it's not the best way to deliver that service for anyone. So also folks with HIV and other related illnesses that are characteristic within the LGBT community. So what they're finding now is that they're doing a study, they're going to find out why people are going to the emergency rooms. They're going to offer more immediate, urgent behavioral health care at facilities and really try to find a way that can solve this problem to be early interventionist in mental health for LGBT folks, and then hopefully use that as a model to spread to other emergency rooms and other populations to try and help ease that cost and ease that stress of going to the ER
3: and we should pick up and say that this means that there it will be more cost effective yeah. i mean that's just for people who are like here we go pandering to certain groups this is really an overarching issue throughout the health system so should this be successful as they believe it will be then they can spread this across yeah it's sort you know, of an to answer to the,
2: the 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 addiction issue which the yeah. you know the boston police just announced and the Arlington police and mm-hmm. the middlesex county are trying to intervene getting people who have substance abuse issues not into jail but into mental health. I mean, I think we're all, at least in this century, starting to realize the common threat of mental health when it comes to needing services from health providers Mm -hmm. and how maybe we could do a better job with that.
4: I mean, I think pilots and more money always are a good thing. Uh, In term in in any sort of sector and any sort of thing. So um, especially if they down the road, bring down costs.
0: Yeah. And getting in there on the early end is useful, not just when it comes to mental health assistance, but the city has kind of a similar approach when it comes to the triage for homelessness, Mm -hmm. which is if you get in Mm -hmm. on the front end, um, you end up saving a lot of resources further down the line.
3: All right. Well, on to a story that's a little puzzling, but interesting. And that's uh, Josh Zakem, who is a city councilor, Boston city councilor, has thrown his head in the ring against Bill Galvin, who is Massachusetts secretary of state, longtime secretary of state. And Josh Zakem just got reelected to the city council not long ago.
4: Well, it's going to be uh, 2018 uh, is already set to be packed. Uh, we've got ballot questions. We've got a governor's race, U.S. Senate race. And uh, now it looks like we're going to have a pretty heated race for secretary of state. And this is one of those jobs that I think if you talk to the average person, they're going to be like, wait, that's elected <laughs> um, because it's uh, Bill Galvin in his role wears many hats. He's the overseer of the public records law. He uh, over oversees corporate securities. Mm-hmm. He's uh, the elections chief, so uh, multiple hats, head of the Massachusetts Historical Commission. No, I did so, not know that. Yeah, he's no. uh, and, and he oversees the Massachusetts Archives <laughs> in Columbia Point. So it's uh, multiple hats, and and he's also known on Beacon Hill as uh, I have to mention this as the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> okay. uh, so he's been around for a long time, and and. All right. uh, so uh, I actually, when I was interviewing him for the story, I conducted it in the darkness of his lobby. So, <laughs> okay. um, so Josh Zakim, um, obviously, uh, he's the son of Lenny Zakim, mm-hmm. an activist, a late activist, uh, namesake of the Zakim Bridge, mm-hmm. and he uh, feels he could do a better job. That's basically what it comes down to. He feels uh, he wants to tap progressives. And he wants to uh, give Bill Galvin a run for his money. And because he has a little more name recognition than your average candidate uh, and because he can fundraise better than the average candidate, he's considered more of a contender. Uh, and I think that's why you also see Galvin coming out swinging a little bit in this. Early, yeah. A little mm-hmm. early and saying, like, well, listen, you know, like this guy, uh, which I think is a fair point. You know, he literally voters just sent him back a couple weeks ago to the city council. He hasn't been sworn into his uh, next term uh, and he's already pivoting to um, a statewide Run. And, you know, obviously the name recognition and the money aside, running statewide as a Boston city councilor is very, very tough. <laughs> it is.
3: I would say, uh, Sue, if people have been even half paying attention to the Secretary of State's roles, they may know two things about uh, Bill Galvin. One, he told the phony Trump Voting Commission, no, we mm-hmm. will not give you information from Massachusetts voters. You know, you got to come with something else if you want to get this information, and we're not going to give it up. But the other thing was he got tangled up in that records situation in which, you know, there are people trying to get legitimate information, and our law is messed up, and he seemed not to be navigating that well Mm -hmm. um, and helping people do that. So those two things that people know about Bill Galvin— and um, I don't know if that bodes well for him or not. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> you
2: know? to Gin's point about it, what, I have to vote for this person? I thought he's yeah. always been there. I mean, again, since he's been there, for, I don't even know how long, how many years has it been? Uh, since
4: the 1990s. Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know. I,
2: I can't remember anybody <laughs> yeah. else doing that job. And he does a very good job. I mean, he, he I, I don't think that there's a, there are issues, of course, with everybody about what you think, but he's done a capable job at the helm. And also to Gin's point, I can't think of any city councilor who has ever gone anywhere other than to mayor. Um, Not in I, well, recent memory. The
0: thing, the actually, the the bell this was ringing to me. Um, it he wasn't active at the time, but I just keep thinking about Steve Murphy going to Register mm. of Deeds, right? Which was mm. right. another thing where people are like. I we, what is vote, that? Right. Nobody we knew what that, that was. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. Where <laughs> yeah. it was that same thing where it's kind of this odd bureaucratic role Elected, people right. kind of assume but just happens. I'm, and I'm
2: thrilled to have people run for office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it. And, and it's a two year term as um, as city councilor. So he would fill one year of his term if he won. So mm-hmm. what the heck? Run.
3: Okay, well, we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, I would say that we should say that uh, Zakem says his focus is really about uh, ensuring and protecting people's voting rights because. Um, as Galvin had to deal with, there's a lot of issues around that now. We're, we're fraught on many, and the even in Massachusetts. Yeah. So that's a big that's a big job, and worthy of of taking up. Not PSM. the
2: sexy um, access to records. <laughs> yeah, well, that, right. that but is that too. Is but I'm just deal. saying it, he can, he should be able
3: to get people's attention with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer, I'm very interested in once again the conversation about uh, the Strand Theater mm. and what's going to happen there. The Strand Theater is just a beautiful valuable space it's gone through ups and downs it's still there lots of movement around it mm-hmm. and people are concerned that it still have an offer to people in the neighborhood the kind of um, space, public and community space it has in the past, but nobody quite knows what to do or how to do it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, the conversation's coming up again in the context of this broader Upham's Corner planning that the city's trying to do right now. Um, Everyone's kind of aware on some level that there's this Imagine Boston 2030 plan, which is this massive citywide master plan. Um, But Not entirely clear on what the plan is for individual neighborhoods. So it identified Upham's Corner as this potential enhanced neighborhood where there was existing planning that had been done with the Fairmount line because it's right by the Upham's Corner stop um, and with a lot of local activist groups. It has, um, for instance, the Strand Theater. So it's kind of this cultural hub for for that neighborhood So the city's coming back again and saying, we're not trying to replan everything, but we're just trying to take all of this work that's already been done and actually turn it into something so they're looking at some of the major parcels and the Strand Theater is one of them so they spent an entire evening basically doing uh, citizen focus group sessions on what are you worried about with the Strand Theater what role does it have in the community and what do you want to see if we manage to get a private partner to come in bolster the funding for the theater which has been run by the city and or nonprofits for for ages um, and is kind of declined um, in use over the years and basically say, what should the Strand Theater be now in 2017? It's no longer a vaudeville house. It's no longer a movie theater. Mm-hmm. So what should it be? And um, and the things that were coming out of these sessions were really interesting where folks were saying, maybe partition it a bit, maybe add some... Kind of a black
3: box situation. Have a black box mm-hmm. situation,
0: have performing space, mm-hmm. maybe shared workspace somewhere mm-hmm. in there so that if so um the city officials said that weirdly, even though you might not know it walking by the Strand Theater, it's actually booked almost entire, like almost the course of the entire year. But it's because if someone books the Strand, they book the Strand. <laughs> they, can, they can't just say, I'd like the hallway. Right. Um, so, so, so nobody else can use it. So mm-hmm. if someone books it for a week and a week of that is rehearsals and stage building, then the public's in there maybe one or two nights. Mm-hmm. So if they broke it up into smaller theater areas, maybe some workspace, the community could actually get better more access and a bit more use out of it.
3: I hope it happens because um, it's a treasure and um, I'd like to see it preserved in any kind of interesting way. That I think the model for
0: it is the Boston Center for the Arts
2: in the South. Yeah, End. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. Know, I mean, yeah. that's a good mean That's a yeah.
0: great example. Yeah.
4: I, and I remember during the mayor's race, you, you uh, hosted a, a debate in there. I did. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to see it, you know, whatever. And
0: Walsh kicked off his initial campaign there. So Exactly. Be <laughs> <laughs> what I, I really out. wish
3: for is what happened in Seattle. Uh, Paul Allen, who is uh, you know, a guy who made a lot of money... Uh, with the uh, you
2: know internet
3: and all that, was walking by a protest to save an iconic building downtown Seattle, and the people were saying, "Save the theater, save the theater." He said, "Okay," and he, <laughs> and he took the, sh- the flyer and went home and then spent all his Michael money. Michael Bivins with, were you know? talking to you. <laughs> Attention, Michael Bivins. Oh, and, isn't that fabulous? And yeah. So he said, "All right." So he, so he did the whole thing. Yeah. Well,
0: they want to put they want to put <laughs> yeah. out a request for proposals for the entirety yeah. of these yeah. up and corner things at the yeah. end, and hope someone will come in there yeah. and. Have I'll a plan, take yeah, too all right. I got a
3: few seconds to squeeze this in. Um again, the guy dry, drawing his own bike lane <laughs> <laughs> over a Congress street bridge. I admire him, but really? <laughs> <laughs>
4: and, <laughs> well, and 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 Mayor Walsh acknowledged that it was it was uh, out of frustration. He, right. he's but he said, no, you can't you can't just do that. He said, like we are trying to come up with, again, more planning on the mm-hmm. city level of just like adding more bike lanes. And you know we'll see if Congress Streets gets one, but he says no, you cannot, you cannot paint your own bike lane.
3: And you know what, this does not help. And there's a lot of tension going on now between uh, bikers and 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 uh, uh, motorists. I certainly in Cambridge, where they're drawing these lines with the city's permission, and not always uh, considering everybody's needs. But and I'm all about people biking, even if I'm not on the bike. Just <laughs> want to be sure that people know that. But I thought this was inventive. He drew it, then they erased it. So just so everybody knows, if you go looking for it, it's, not there. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> But they
2: also covered it with black paint and then covered over the bicycle that he drew, also so it really paint, looks yeah. like well, that's this, true. like you know, this dark. Kind of, came yeah, in and true. Eradi- eradicated it. All right, we
3: got one minute for it to talk about this uh, memorial for Puerto Rican veterans, uh, Sue down yeah. uh, down your way, which I think is great because people continue to act surprised that. Puerto Ricans were defending the United States.
2: Yeah, I know that this was on Veterans Day over the weekend, and I just wanted to include it because in in the middle of the heart of the South End, right on Washington Street, there's a memorial to the Puerto Ricans' veterans. And uh, this this year, uh, Senator Warren was there, Governor Baker was there, all of the city council members to dedicate a new plaque. And um, just to keep, you know, in mind and top of mind, the contributions that the citizens of Puerto Rico have made to the country that they share with us, the United States of America, and how many Puerto Rican veterans uh, have both given their lives and uh, served the country. And um, at the event on on, uh, Veterans Day, they talked about the need to continue to pay attention to what's happening in Puerto Rico. This was last month. Things have not gotten that much better. So uh, I just wanted to use it as an opportunity Uh, as we we head to the end of the year to remind people that Puerto Rico still needs a lot of help. And
3: also it's uh, the fifth largest population of of, uh, Puerto Ricans are here in um, Boston. There will probably be more now that people are leaving the island for more. Right, and the South
2: End is hosting benefits after benefit for the folks in the gay community, Uh, gays for good, I think. Oh, no, the Boston Pride Committee is hosting a benefit at Club Cafe to raise money for Puerto Rico. So uh, a, a big part of obviously our country, but also our community right here in Boston. In the South End.
3: Um, Governor Baker made sure that Tony Molina was uh, particularly cited. He's um, the president of the Puerto Rican Veterans. Right, and a lot of great
2: affection between the two of them. It was really great to see. Okay.
3: All right, I'd like to end on a positive note, so thank you all (laughs) for joining (laughs) me. Again, Doomchis is a statehouse reporter for Mass Live. Sue O'Connell is host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. And Jennifer Smith is news editor for the Dorchester Reporter. Coming up, could being a part of a drum circle really help us better understand ourselves and others? Local musician and soon-to-be Lesley University graduate Jonathan Monde certainly thinks so. Jonathan talks to us about his educational and therapeutic program, Drums and Wellness that's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Drummer Jonathan Monday knows firsthand the power of music on our minds and our feelings. With his new education program, Monday is hoping to use drumming as a form of therapy and to teach life skills like listening and collaborating. Here to tell us more about his teaching method? Jonathan Monday, founder of Drums and Wellness. Jonathan is also a student at Lesley University. Jonathan, welcome to Under the Radar.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Well, I'm delighted to have you. Let's just jump right in. Your program is called Drums and Wellness. Describe what it is.
1: That's right. Well, you know, Drums and Wellness is a personal and community development education startup Uh, And so as a drum-based education, it's really about using drums to not only bring people together, but from an individual perspective, working with individuals in developing critical life skills while learning how to play an instrument. So we know now
3: that arts therapy is very much proven over and over again. So sometimes people draw, sometimes people use other kinds of musical instruments. I'm just curious about how drumming for you, you think, really helps people make a connection and perhaps maybe other instruments don't as far as you're concerned or or more specifically why drumming is very much linked to people's healing and just healing I guess mm-hmm.
1: yeah no mm-hmm. that's a good question mm-hmm. it's not as daunting i've seen people just kind of gravitate towards the drum anybody if they see the drum they just they want to play it it's one of those instruments that it doesn't require a lot of technique and so because of that, it's easier to facilitate playing. So, so the difference between learning how to play the drums, or at least in this case, hand drums, as opposed to the guitar, there's a lot of technique involved in strumming, in finding the melody on a guitar. Though, even while you're learning how to play guitar, having a rhythmic sense or a sense of rhythm is critical in that as well. And so rhythm is the basis of everything. And so if anybody learns rhythm or they understand their sense of rhythm, then how they connect with themselves and others in the world is really representing their true authentic self. Sort of life
3: beat, heartbeat, if you will. Kind of right,
1: <laughs> right. And, and that's the idea here is finding and aligning your internal sense of rhythm. In doing so, it, then it helps us understand the rhythm of the world around. Now, you mentioned that people
3: find the drum accessible. You know, you hear it and you gravitate to it because you think you can do this and you have a connection. In fact, that was what got you into it originally. So you were five right. uh, living in the Congo in Africa. And mm-hmm. tell us the story about how you first began to drum.
1: It just kind of came to me. I heard a song by a famous Congolese musician, Kofi Olomide, and there's an introduction to a song that just kind of stuck to me, and I wanted to play it, and I made my own drum set just based on what I had seen on TV and what I thought I could do. So I actually went and found two bamboo sticks... And I had a cinder block, and with that cinder block on top of it was a piece of cardboard, and on top of that was uh, sort of broom hairs, and the broom hairs are made from the stem from palm leaves, and so that was used as the drum set, and I just used my foot as the bass drum, and that's kind of how I started and so from that point forward, I was really interested in learning more about drums. And I started just staying a little later at church services and, and jumping on the drums and just banging on it. And then they started letting me play during service every once in a while. <laughs> and that was kind of the genesis
3: so I'm curious to know, when you put your own drum set together, what did it sound like? Was it anything close to what
1: you had imagined? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. As I imagined it in my mind, uh, it definitely sounded right. But looking back, it, it, nah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, your journey from five years old making your own drum
3: set to playing in church in the Congo and coming to America is quite a, a lengthy one. You came here because of uh, overwhelming circumstances, really—the the coup and the war going on there—and separated from your mom for a time. Ended up here, and just pick up the story there. You because you were eleven when you came, and still there was a lot going on that. For all intents and purposes, you may never have drummed or done anything else again, given what you were experiencing. Right, Mm -hmm. right.
1: Well, it was a series of unfortunate situations. I think that's the best way I could put it. So if we can go back to 1994, the Rwandan genocide spilled into Congo big time. And as you had mentioned, the coup uh, was also happening. A lot of things were happening at that time. At that point, I was just in it. We had lost contact with my mom because she had been traveling. She was going to the Ivory Coast, but we didn't know where she was. When she got to Ivory Coast, she ended up sending us a postcard telling us that she was safe, that she was there. And that was just a period in my development where seeing a lot of horrible things happening, the way people were treated with war, it's war. It's really horrible. It's, it's war. It's mm-hmm. horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. there are millions of people mm-hmm. dying, no electricity for long, long, long periods of time, You know, and we would have to travel miles for clean water. I, the reason I'm having you
3: recount that is just so people have a good sense of, of where you came from and right. how this has informed you as you started thinking about using the drum for healing later on. So when you arrived in America at 11 and, you know, you're homeless and you're trying to connect with family members and all that, that's still was, it wasn't it was over. The war, in some sense, wasn't over for you once
1: you arrived. Right. I mean, mm. it was just a new kind of war. Mm. And it was now about fitting in and finding my identity. Yeah, I mean, with no English words in my mouth, you know, I had to really find my place and... We were lucky enough to be granted Section 8 housing. There actually used to be a homeless shelter in Brookline. And so we lived there for a period of time. And so I was able to go to the Edward Devotion School. And that's really where I started to find myself. And I was able to connect with some teachers that were really impactful in my development. You know, and these are people that just really got where I was coming from and what I needed,
3: and it was there
1: that you got into the after-school
3: program for drumming, right? Uh, with a gentleman named Jorge. Jorge. So, right. just talk to me about what that meant to you at that point. I mean, we've just heard these horrific stories of what you had gone through. Here you are, as you say, trying to find your space, and now here's the drum again mm-hmm. reappearing in your life with uh, someone who can really teach you.
1: I, I finally had an outlet. I finally had a space where I can express myself and just be. So given that I started playing much earlier, now I was learning how to play jazz. I was learning and Jorge given that he is from Peru, we were playing a lot of um, afro- Peruvian beats and so we were really just able to connect on that level where he taught me a lot. but as he says, I taught him a lot as well. and so he he just he became a mentor. And someone that I was able to connect with from a, a music standpoint, but also just somebody to look up to. When you moved to
3: high school, you were still bearing the scars of the old experiences and trying, still trying to—well, high school, first of all, is you know high school, so <laughs> that's, a, that's a rough situation. Right. And then you had all this other stuff to deal with emotionally. And things didn't go so well there, so you ended up repeating a year. It wasn't—weren't a good student. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm saying all this so that people understand the journey of where you are now. Double major at Lesley University, (laughs) you're developing your own program. It's quite the journey. And the through line has always been when you return to drumming, you somehow found—got stabilized—
1: it was a tough journey. But at the same time, I had to go through all of that to be where I am today. A lot of academic trauma in high school came up. And, and in some senses, I was able to assimilate pretty fast, even though there were some challenges in learning language and so on, just because I was able to see how people moved and acted and interacted. And so I took in that information. And so To a lot of people looking at me, it was as if he's good, he's all set, Mm -hmm. he doesn't need anything, but they didn't see that there was a lot more that I needed. I needed a lot more support, and so that's what made it really challenging. Uh, And so that one person in high school that I had was Paul Epstein, Mm -hmm. who was my social worker, and it was really great having that support, somebody that, that really gets you and sees beyond your troubles and circumstances. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening
3: to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Leslie University student Jonathan Munday, and we're discussing his educational program called Drums and Wellness. So now I want to connect because just to tag off of high school, um, you ended up having to repeat a year and nobody thought that you were going to be the guy that was going to come back and (laughs) do all this great Mm -mm. academic stuff, but yet you did. That somehow got you rebalanced. You even spent, for uh, an incident in in high school, spent 35 days in jail, came out of that, regrouped. And tell me now how playing those drums through this time started helping you figure out your path to wellness, which then, of course, led you to realize that it could be an instrument for other people
1: as well. So 35 days in jail was definitely impactful, but I didn't want to let that circumstance dictate who I am and what I was out to do, because I always knew that I was capable of a lot of things. So with all of that, I kept playing drums. When I came out of that, one of the first things I did was I went to the library and started reading, but then I went and started playing drums in my room, sitting there just playing, trying to understand, well, first of all, I have to go back to the high school as what they call super senior. And so I have to kind of face the music. Literally. Literally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and and so how am I going to do that, you know, with all of these things going on? And not too long before the incident, I was diagnosed with executive functioning and PTSD. And so for me, I had to do a lot of internal work. And so at that time, I didn't even know that I am doing anything for healing. I was just doing what I love, which is drumming always. And then 2011, I was at the high school and I did a dual degree program between Brookline High School and Bunker Hill Community College. Let's just stop there, because you were a kid that had got kicked out, spent 35 days in jail, had to
3: repeat, and now you're doing a dual program. I mean, yeah. you have really turned your life around.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I was also, so Paul Epstein uh, actually approached me and uh, told me about a, a running program for at-risk high school students, uh, it's called Dream DreamFar High School Marathon, for high school students to train for and run the marathon. So I, I was working part-time, actually, and I was doing the dual program, and I was training for the marathon. So it's that, a whole new you. It was, a, it was a completely whole new me. But that was a whole new me out here. There were still things internally that I was dealing with. You know, a lot of self-esteem stuff. You know, I, I thought, you know, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough, even though I'm doing all these things. You know, I was motivated by finding success and, you know, creating success in my life, yet I was still dealing with a lot of past traumas. And so, I mean, I went on that year to not only did I complete the high school and get my diploma, I also completed the marathon. And so that was a metaphor to life to me, that it's a race in some ways, but you've got to take it slow, one step at a time. It can be completed despite the challenges that come along the way. So now,
3: Jonathan Monday, you're a double major, psychology and...
1: And, and I'm specializing in expressive arts therapy. And you're
3: expe- you're specializing, as you said, in this uh, arts therapy, and you're able to now talk to certainly young people. I mean, I know you do deal with all ages. And to say to them, I was a big old mess, mm-hmm. and I this is the way in which I reached back and found myself and led to something more positive. And I want to know what you say. I mean, what what made you put all this together and say there are some skills that I'm learning from drumming that can be used in a therapeutic way, and I can definitely reach young people, certainly, who were like me, trying to figure it all out?
1: Well, Jorge has been teaching at the devotion school for 20 years. And the program there during school, it's a drum program working with students with learning differences or students that are, are in IEP or have been identified by their teachers. And so seeing that and talking with him, you know, he had me come in and work with him a couple of times. I saw that this is really impactful. How can we take it to the next level? And then he offered me to teach after school. And I started out with about six students, and then it, it grew over time. And but it, what made you think that this was going to work, that, that what worked for you, therapeutically, right. would work for these kids? Well, because I was able to express myself in ways that I, I wasn't able to do with anything else. And so the thing about drumming, to me, is being in a space that allows me to create. And so... There's sequential formatting in creating a beat, in creating a rhythm. What I've found is as you're creating that beat in a sequential format, you're engaging your left hemisphere of your brain. So I started reading a lot about the multiple intelligences theory and so how you can engage your whole brain with... Logical and analytical thinking and uh, musical intelligence and kinesthetic intelligence and these other intelligences so that, okay, well, we don't just have to think about intelligence as one aspect of your brain in logical thinking, which is kind of in many ways what the education system is based out of, and that's how they're able to measure intelligence in IQ. And so I was like, okay, well, drumming, if you're doing sequential formatting, in essence, you're doing mathematical thinking, but then because it's an instrument, it's, it's musical, and you're having to engage your right hemisphere, in, in essence, what you're doing is you're engaging your whole brain.
3: I just think it's interesting that you said that this learning an instrument, you're developing these four important skills listening communication collaboration and Mm self-expression and that comes all together in the drumming
1: yeah right Mm. in listening we talk a lot about active listening Mm. and active listening so that how you're listening to someone else is being present in listening for what matters what is important or what's missing the presence of which will make a difference so how do we interpret that in rhythm It's very much improvisational because if you're not actively listening to what is happening, you're going to miss what's actually happening right now as we're playing together. So therefore, you might not be able to be effective in creating your rhythm. That's connected with communication because we're having a conversation as we are playing music together. And so that conversation has us work together Through listening communication, we're able to work well together in collaboration. And therefore, what we express in that self-expression is honest expression. And it's not what you think other people might be thinking or what you feel other people might be perceiving of you, but it's of your honest self. And so if we were to look at that in a group, for instance, if we were working with a group of professionals and we want. Creating a cohesive environment. If all these properties or pillars are put in place over time, that will create an effective work environment because then how people listen, communicate, and collaborate with each other is representative of who they are and the work they're out to do.
3: This is my guest, Jonathan Monday. We're discussing his educational program called Drums and Wellness. In terms of active listening, Why don't we take a listen to you playing, we have a tape of it, and just so people get a sense of what it sounds like when you're really in your rhythm. Awesome. So what I want to know is that's very that sounds very sophisticated to me. So if I'm a kid or even an adult just beginning with you, um, how do you begin to teach somebody to approach the drum? I mean, I'd like to know what you show them and what they repeat back to you. Awesome. Yeah. I could get that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I could even get that. (laughs) Yeah. It's
3: possible. It is possible. I'm thinking I could do that. All right. So they start drumming with you. They're watching you. They're active listening. All of these skills that we talked about are engaged. What's it like for you watching them really come into being themselves? Wow. Uh,
1: (laughs) It's really empowering for me. It's empowering. But then I, I try to remember that I don't do this for me. I do it for them. The thing about this work is it's never over. It's never done. For instance, in my own journey, like I'm not done working on myself. And so to be in a space where I feel like, okay, well, you know, you've learned these skills and, and now you're working towards mastering them. And, and so, so that's great. But then what's next after that? And so my whole thing is, because this is improvisational-based, I'm not necessarily teaching kids how to be the next best drummer. And if they go on to being the next best drummer, then that's awesome. I want to give them the basic skills as a drummer with these other socio-emotional-based skills through drums that is, from a holistic standpoint, hopefully going to give them the skills they need to be effective individuals in the world. So your program's called Drums and Wellness. Is this a new definition of wellness? I would say it's definitely something new to bring to the table, a different way of looking at wellness. And so using drums as a way of development. And so there's still more research to be done in looking at how it affects cognitive development. You know, and, and that's really what I'm excited about, continuously working on. I'm excited to continue to discover new things and, and to partner with anybody that would like to work with me in this development.
3: Well, good luck to you. You're graduating from Leslie and taking this on out into your future work and career and expanding this. So good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Jonathan Monday is a student at Leslie University and the founder of Drums and Wellness. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you have, may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.